Welcome to another episode of Theater Reviews from My Seat. As it happens, episode 25 is the one where I introduce sound effects moving up in the world. The mission of my blog and this podcast is to share my passion for live theater, review a production without plot spoilers, and hopefully inspire you to check out a new play, musical, or theater company. By listening, you should get a sense of what a particular show is about and why I do or do not recommend it. I am also now a critic for the website Broadway World under my name, Joe Lombardi, but my blog and this podcast discusses every show I attend. I am New York City-based, but often review productions in other cities. This monthly podcast is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcast. Pick your favorite, and if you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate a five-star review, which will help me get the word out about recommended theater productions. Today, I am going to share my observations for shows I attended during the month of November 2019. Three Broadway plays will be included in today's episode, The Great Society, The Sound Inside with Mary Louise Parker, and the epic play The Inheritance, which was actually performed in two parts. A number of off-Broadway offerings will be included as well, including Heroes of the Fourth Turning, Cyrano, with Game of Thrones star Peter Dinklage, History of Violence from a Berlin theater company, which was performed at St. Anne's Warehouse, and Will Eno's new play, The Underlying Chris. I've got a couple of immersive theater pieces to share with you, including the Black History Museum, according to the United States of America, and also Unmaking Tallulah Trek. Finally, I saw a production at the University of Notre Dame from their Department of Film, Television, and Theater, their production of a faculty member's play, Staging the Daffy Dame. As always, you can visit the website for up-to-date or archived posts at www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. Direct links to this podcast are located on the About This Reviewer page, so you can easily find links to your favorite provider. In addition, you can register online to receive emails for all new posts as they are added. Now let's take our seats so I can tell you about the shows I've covered this month. My first play this month is Heroes of the Fourth Turning by Will Arbery, which was performed at Playwrights Horizons. In his intensely mesmerizing new play, one of Will Arbery's characters calls liberals, quote, empathy addicts. There are no liberals on stage in Heroes of the Fourth Turning. Catholic conservatives from rural Wyoming have stormed the Manhattan Theater. They are not attempting conversion as much as communication. The dialogue is so brilliant that it draws you into this little world for a sane glimpse into a group not often sympathetically or even respectfully represented in plays. Laura Yelenek's set design contains a lone house at dawn. There is a forest nearby and a mountain in the distance. The lights are dim. Justin is sitting quietly on the porch 
when he hears something. He picks up his rifle and shoots. He retrieves a deer and dumps it on his porch for gutting. Stains of blood and murder set the tone. Justin's home is the location for an after-party. The Transfiguration College of Wyoming has just installed a new president. This is a private Catholic college, similar to the one the playwright attended. His father, actually, is the current president of that school. If you want to peek into a world that is laser-focused on propagating its beliefs, especially if they disagree with yours, and if you want that view to be adorned with some of the most satisfyingly artful and intelligent prose, then this play is a must-see. Gina is the new president, but she has not yet arrived at this party, and it is getting late. Emily is her daughter, who has an unexplained illness, walks with crutches, and manages to exist in a state of perpetual goodness. She's devout, but counts as friends, one who works at Planned Parenthood, and another who is a drag queen. It is easy to love her and her contradictions. Teresa has come back to the school to celebrate one of her teachers and this particular accomplishment. She lives in Brooklyn. The world around her is filled with evil liberals. She reminded me of a terrifically articulate Ann Coulter type. She smokes and does cocaine. Her exquisitely delivered staccato diatribes are nothing short of spectacular. Zoe Winter's performance is mind-blowing in the role of Teresa. It is easy to dislike her, but she's got spunk for days. She argues that abortion and the Holocaust are the same thing. Abolishing slavery has led to anti-slavery, where they are trying to oppress us. Almost militant in her convictions, I could never be someone this far off my spectrum of reasonableness. Sitting in a theater and absorbing her beliefs without any opportunity to argue or turn the channel forces listening. She's whip-smart and polished. This play gives her voice a serious pulpit. The theater-goer can take it all in and think. The fourth turning of the title is a pseudoscientific theory which believes that every generation goes through four cycles. Teresa explains this and believes it wholeheartedly. We are currently at the fourth period, which is also known as crisis. Whose fault? Well, if you guess Obama, then you would be correct. Kevin is the fool of the play. He's drinking tonight and desperately trying to find a girlfriend. He is filled with self-loathing. Teresa calls him a soy boy. Portrayed by John Zordeski, he is a young man who graduated from this college. He's young and caught between his commitment to faith and his obsession with internet porn. He questions his behavior when going to church, speed praying by rote, and then going off to brunch. The character of Kevin is filled with heart and soul, along with supremely entertaining inner conflicts. They erupt volcanically in an enormously self-deprecating way. 
Mr. Drozewski is superb in his depiction of this deeply flawed yet highly sympathetic character. Michelle Park plays Gina, and when she finally arrives to pick up her daughter, the debates escalate even further. Rather than simply showcase a pile of brainless conservatives, Mr. Arbery has created five individuals who reside along the spectrum of conservatism. Gina is looking past the Trump presidency. Here's her quote. He's a gaseous windbag and I pray for his soul. She does admit, however, that he was the choice that had to be made. Danya Tamor beautifully directs this cyclone of intermingling arguments and interpersonal relationship drama. Heroes of the Fourth Turning is dense with language and concepts. Somehow, Ms. Tamor makes this celebratory evening at Justin's house crackle with realistic life. This production is one of the year's finest. Fans of debate will find this entire play filled with scintillating verbiage. You may or may not agree with the content, and that's the point. Asking a New York audience to sit for two hours with no intermission and listen to a nonstop barrage of conservative philosophizing may seem audacious and ill-advised. Not at all. Perhaps this play is the first pylon in the creation of a new bridge in which opposite points of view are actually heard. I'll certainly never align with most of the opinions of conservatives and the inherent hatred which permeates organized religion. Like the author, I grew up in such a household. I've stopped hearing them. Will Arbery's play, however, made me listen and appreciate his mission to write this astonishing literary achievement. From the conservative side of the aisle to the liberal side. And the Broadway play, The Great Society. In 2014, All the Way won a Tony Award for Best Play. Robert Schenken masterfully chronicled LBJ's ascendance to the presidency from JFK's assassination through the passage of the Civil Rights Act and his triumphant landside re-election over Barry Goldwater in 1964. The Great Society is a sequel which covers his second, less fondly remembered, term in office. Brian Cox from HBO's Succession portrays Lyndon Baines Johnson in this version. Brian Cranston won a Tony for his earlier profile of this down-home Texan and masterful political manipulator. He was able to showcase the glory years as well as the man's craftiness. Mr. Cox provides over a time of race riots and Vietnam. The mood is definitely darker, and LBJ is edgier and much less self-assured. The 36th President of the United States is, however, far from timid during this period. Mr. Cox opens the play with some commentary intended to underscore the man's outlook. On bull riding, LBJ ponders, why would I do that? The fairly obvious analogy being drawn is how brilliantly LBJ rode the bulls of Washington to move his agenda forward. 
1965, LBJ is straddling the fence between securing poverty bills or voting rights. Vietnam looms as a small thorn which will metastasize shortly. He is managed by General William Westmoreland to increase the number of American troops. He says, I don't want to be the president who lost Asia. All during this time, America is embroiled in enormous social conflicts. The murder of Jimmy Lee Jackson leads to the Selma marches and police violence. One of the organizers asks an unanswerable question. How can LBJ send troops to Vietnam, but not to South Alabama? This play has a plethora of historical drama at its disposal. Therein lies the problem. The Great Society is overstuffed with facts and characters. All of the material is interesting, especially if you are a history buff. There is a spark note sketchiness to this play, however, which makes fascinating figures such as Martin Luther King and Hubert Humphrey look like unremarkable sidekicks in LBJ's bombastic solar system. No one in his orbit emerges as a three-dimensional person. Projections add additional facts and photographs to emphasize what is being dutifully dramatized on stage. David Corns's benign set design appears to suggest a courtroom with jury boxes. I attempted to determine why certain characters were seated on stage at various times. All of my theories led nowhere. Different people just watch as LBJ summons them in and spews them out. The master manipulation is super fun and uneventful at the same time. Not that there isn't a reason to consider the significance of LBJ's socially progressive agenda in light of current events. The Supreme Court just weakened the impact of the Voting Rights Act. Large swaths of American citizens do not understand the phrase Black Lives Matter and its import. Hard-hitting dialogue registers and forces you to sit up in your seat. The federal government leaves... Quote, black children in the streets to starve as they kill yellow children with jelly bombs. This play remembers that civil rights was not simply a North versus South story. Chicagoans held protests with signs which read, Who needs niggers? and Negroes go back to Africa. The scene recreating this event is presented so artificially that it generates no emotion on the stage or off. The subject matter is never boring, but the direction by Bill Rauch is not helpful. Many actors have multiple roles in this production. The storytelling is not confusing, but it is very basic. I saw a group of high school-aged young adults in the theater. This play gives a nicely detailed recap of LBJ, the war in Vietnam, our country's racial tensions, and the often disheartening compromises required to make legislation happen. Nothing is new, but the overview could bring some needed backdrop to the next generation. The most memorable performance comes from David Garrison as the unctuous racist George Wallace, and he also plays Tricky Dick Nixon. The wiretapping surveillance of Nixon by LBJ was a particularly interesting factoid. Bryce Pinkham is a fine Bobby Kennedy, 
refreshingly portrayed as a real wheeling and dealing politician rather than an iconic demigod. As the man himself, Brian Cox plays LBJ a tad smaller than ideal. Mr. Cranston was a firebrand in his depiction. Mr. Cox is naturally covering the tougher years when this leader ran into a wall and his political career died. That weariness is beautifully realized before it's time for another scene, and another, and another. I enjoyed sitting through the Great Society despite its many flaws. The play is too long and crammed with too many scenes which are only mildly interesting. The documentary tone and brisk pacing saps this incredibly rich story of needed depth. Any drama which makes you focus on an 18-month period where troops in Vietnam grew from 24,000 to 375,000 young men is worth talking about. Any drama which makes you understand how power corrupts is worth a listen. This one, The Great Society, is for people who want a quick overview of a tumultuous period in American history. Next up, Dr. Ride's American Beach House by Liza Birkenmeyer, presented off-Broadway at Ars Nova. Boredom sets in early and sits down for a long respite during the 90 minutes of Dr. Ride's American Beach House. Audience members noticeably squirm in their chairs. A few leave, noisily. This slice of semi-repressed lesbian Americana is underwhelming, cliched, and an absolute waste of time. Harriet and Mildred went to college together and studied poetry. That has led them to careers as waitresses in St. Louis. One is married with a child who is sick today. Mom's not really in a rush to get home. The other has a boyfriend. She describes in detail a sexual liaison she has with a motorcycle guy. That story is so far from believable that it registers as amusingly ridiculous. Both women hang on each other so casually that there is no doubt that they are or have been lovers. After a work shift, they gather on Harriet's rooftop to gather for the Two Serious Ladies Book Club. No books have been read. Instead, they drink beer and listen to the radio. They are excitedly anticipating the launching of the Space Shuttle Challenger the next morning. Sally Ride is going to make history. Dr. Ride was closeted as are these women. It's 1983 and a very different time. This play is blunt with the metaphors. These two close friends are in their 30s and life is eluding them. Mildred has invited Meg to the book club. She arrives wearing a motorhead t-shirt and a backwards baseball cap. Her hairstyle screams butch. She says, I don't hate men. They make me homicidal. Meg is the contrasting, very blunt counterpoint to these two women who are meandering through an unfocused life. At one point, Meg changes the music to heavy metal. She headbangs in her chair. 
the other two eventually start jumping up and down in a dance of sorts. The overtly obvious message is that these two lesbians yearn to be free like Meg. Presumably metal is a gateway? The scene is clumsy and cartoonish. Another woman arrives to round out the lesbian stereotypes. She only cares about safety and money. Why is she in the house? Who cares? She has an unseen woman with her who never stops eating. Yes, Liza Birkenmeyer's play is that cliched. As Harriet, Matilda, and Meg, Kristen Say, Aaron Markey, and Marga Gomez are committed to their dialogue and produce good characterizations. Katie Brooks' direction dutifully stages the piece as written. The audience drops in on the conversation with little backstory ever explained. When snippets of information arrive, they seem forced. I was bored from start to finish. Why did Sally Ride want to go into space? The funny theory offered here was to wave at the Russians and pray for you in your totalitarian darkness. I suppose the juxtaposition between Dr. Ride's closeted existence and these women fumbling to thrive during this era is an interesting conceit. I never got past the hoary stereotypes and general anesthesia of the evening. Two women sat in front of us before this play began. One turned around to apologize. I'm sorry, I'm top-heavy. By that I mean tall. She was indeed tall, but not blocking our view. I assumed the woman with her was her partner. She turned around and replied, She's top-heavy the other way, too. The first responded, Yes, I am. We all laughed heartily. Neither of them seemed to respond enthusiastically when the show ended either. We were all on the same page. Next up, the new group's production of Cyrano. Before the show begins, a soul leaf drifted down to the stage. The comment could not be avoided. All you can think is, autumn is coming. Fans of Game of Thrones have gathered to see Emmy winner Peter Dinklage take on Cyrano based on Edmund Rostand's 1897 classic play. Leaves will fall later in this woefully dull musical, so I assume the preview was a tiny technical snafu. Mr. Dinklage's wife, Erica Schmidt, has adapted and directed this tale with music from Grammy Award-winning rock band The National. Cyrano the Ugly is in love with the beauty Roxanne, but she instead yearns for a man with physical rather than intellectual enchantments. The story clearly feels right for a musical, which has indeed been attempted before. The book is fairly leaden from the start, and the songs, unfortunately, make it worse. This one is hard to sit through. The production interestingly aims for chamber-like dirge, but there are few sparks to suggest passion on the stage. Everyone does not seem to be in the same show. Mr. Dinklage's dwarfism replaces the long nose of the character as written. That choice is inspired. His performance is good, and his gravelly singing voice works well with the mood. The songs are all unremarkable, so it is hard to say that his Cyrano was especially memorable. 
He does, however, know how to firmly command a stage. His pain is palpably rendered. Jasmine Cephas Jones plays Roxanne. She created the double role of and Peggy and Marie Reynolds in Hamilton. I didn't connect to her character in this production. Roxanne is shallow and favors the handsome Christian over the stylized letter writings of a heartbroken Cyrano. His pain is visibly evident. Her desirability is not necessarily so, but I felt the shallow angle was handled nicely. As Christian, Blake Jenner fares best in the part which is self-described as, I can't write a letter, I'm so stupid it's shameful. He sings more beautifully than everyone on the stage, which makes the physical attractiveness of his character work and stand out. On the other hand, everyone else's singing pales by comparison. The musical never quite gels as a result. Some of the scenes are creatively moody and cleverly work to showcase the two men wooing Roxanne through their different selves. Director Schmidt's take on Macbeth with Schoolgirls last season, was tensely disturbing and visually arresting. Here, the mood is set, but what happens feels staged and fake. The war scene in the second act goes on and on. The slow motion choreography by Jeff and Rick Cooperman attempted to add gravitas to the moments. The result was an overlong war ballet with large rifles. Fans of Peter Dinklage will find the Cyrano a reason to spend time watching a marvelous actor brave this classic tale on stage. I have to say, the new group has been producing star vehicles in recent seasons. The results have been mixed. This show, sadly, is hard to recommend. Cyrano is running at the Darrow Royal Theater until December 22nd. For a completely different experience, we'll go to the off-off-Broadway incubator, The Tank. This show is titled Brando Capote. Truman Capote interviewed Marlon Brando in 1957. The legendary actor was in Japan filming Sayonara. Hilariously, we overhear one of the movie's sales pitches. They are using real Japanese actors. This conversation is one level of the multimedia piece Brando Capote. On the flip side, this dance play is a commentary on men and toxic masculinity. Scenes from Mr. Brando's films are cleverly projected onto fans and umbrellas. As the interview took place in Japan, the no style of theater is casually referenced here. The actors wear kimonos. Movie scenes, such as a violent outburst from a streetcar named Desire, are repeated. A voiceover makes the excuse that he worked hard for us, followed by it was just a different time. Snippets from unforgettable movies, such as On the Waterfront, Julius Caesar, and The Godfather, are interspersed with repetitive movements. Meanwhile, Mr. Brando claims that he is not an actor. He is a mimic. The line drawn on stage is the connection between father and son. The violence is passed down through mimicry. In Brando Capote, that overt mimicry is an integral part of this dance. 
Brando's son, Christian, murdered his sister's boyfriend in 1990. She hung herself five years later at the age of 25. This piece aggressively compares the violence society accepts, or even celebrates, in popular entertainment, well, it compares that to the collateral damage it causes in real life. Occasionally, the phrases, let me start over, and let me get this right, are heard. What is on the stage, however, suggests that this inherent violence is an unbroken circle. Juxtaposing the effeminate Truman Capote against this backdrop paints a vivid picture of the vast spectrum of manhood. Is Brando Capote a play? Yes, in some respects. Brando is asked, Are you religious? His reply, I don't believe in imaginary friends. The movie scenes are carefully chosen to set the mood. The dance suggests many things, including violence, repetition, and cleaning sequences. Abstract is the name for this world. Sarah and Reed Farrington conceived this expressive and specific piece. She was the writer and he directed. There is a vast quantity of creativity on display in this 70-minute amalgam of performance art and oddly awkward yet nostalgic glimpse of men. Brando was the actor of his generation. Lines are boldly drawn to the issue still being faced today by abusive men. The performers play various family members but that's a loose concept. Using no theater as a guide, both humor and horror make appearances. The technical projections are frequent and nicely varied. The choreography by Laura K. Nicole is precise and rhythmic. There are many pauses when you hear the tape or film reels rewind. These glitches become movements by the cast, which are impressively timed and jolt us from one segment to the next. Brando Capote is ambitious, nonlinear, memorable, and wholly original. It also is a play, a dance, and a historical multimedia exhibit. The entire production feels long as the messages and imagery are often repeated. Patience is advised. Not all of the segments connected in my mind such as the rearranging furniture. However, the sheer mass of creativity and research in the creation of this work is commendable, a most unique dissection of the American male psyche. Now I'd like to take you downtown to the arts organization here and their presentation of another glimpse of the American psyche. This one is entitled the Black History Museum, dot, 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 according to the United States of America. A performer states, I'm old enough to remember Jim Crow. It may have been waning, but it had a heartbeat. So during Obama, it was hard to see it coming back. A 2019 descendant from slavery begins and ends the journey through the Black History Museum, according to the United States of America. This immersive and interactive piece honors the lives of ancestors stolen from Africa on the 400th anniversary of American slavery. Conceived and directed by Zoe Martinson, 
from Smoke and Mirrors Collaborative. This museum tour is an expansive review of and commentary on black history through the use of powerful words, expressive dance, biting satire, and historical objects. Visitors will tour through rooms and hallways of here's entire downtown space. What makes this material even more compelling and fresh are the questions it directly and indirectly asks. None more powerful than, what would you say when you found out you were not human? After a farcical reenactment of some of the Founding Fathers codifying white privilege into the Constitution, the historical tour commences. A hallway with portholes leads the viewer into a wooden pen. The joy of freedom is celebrated through dance and video. The choreography was by Francesca Harper. The horrors of captivity then flood the screens and change the dancers forever. The Founding Fathers are observant and silent. This beginning is powerful, uncomfortable, and very effective. A recording is played as the audience gathers in the lobby before the performance begins. What is black is the question asked to multiple individuals. The replies are thoughtful and personal observations. Combining a broad outline of black history with insightful details enriches the storytelling from history lesson to emotional interpersonal journey. Everyone in this room, regardless of race, faces this truth in their own way. The piece can seem angry, exhausting, goofy, heartbreaking, heartwarming, and cleverly stylized, ambitious, and a little unfocused at times. There is a ton of intellectual stimulation to absorb. The surprises continue as you walk through this museum. People were visibly straining through two hours of standing. That discomfort is surely intentional. I believe the middle section where there is time to wander through some exhibits should probably be shortened. Breathable air in the basement space was less than desirable. The charms contained in this section, however, enlighten and enrage. A shrine to Bayard Rustin, the civil rights leader who was posthumously awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by Barack Obama. Written communication between people, such as the father's 1914 letter to his daughter. The recurring themes of individuality and connectivity to ancestral bonds is harshly projected against the overt racism of the questionably believable American dream. A poster from a Daryl Zanuck film, Pinky, caught my attention. The tagline was, dot, 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 she passed for white. The second most popular movie of 1949, it was nominated for three acting Oscars, including one for Ethel Waters. Marshall, a city in Texas, banned the film. The depiction of a white man retaining his love for a woman after he knew she was Negro was too much to bear. In a segregated theater where blacks watch movies from the balcony, the owner showed the film and was fined. Joseph Burston, Inc. 
versus Wilson became the landmark free speech case where the Supreme Court gave movies First Amendment protection. Finding these little gems of history and researching their import afterwards adds a museum-like authenticity to the performed scenes of dark humor and guttural outrage. I jotted down a note when I saw sheet music for a Burt Williams song entitled The Phrenologist's Coon that was written in 1901. Here's a sample lyric. Now by us scientists, tis often said, if a coon has an egg-shaped head, means chickens he will steal. Another well-chosen artifact to help illuminate the countless and deliberate debasements of a race of people in a country whose formation is a legacy of genocide. The Black History Museum, like many works of art, requires its audience to put some of themselves into the piece. This production is meant to be experienced. In my head, I heard my relatives. When a black woman would be performing on television when I was a child, family members sometimes referred to her singing as coon shouting. That memory came flooding back. Like all worthwhile pursuits, it takes effort to make up one's own mind between right and wrong when indoctrinated with the often misguided teachings of parents, governments, and religious organizations. Near the end of this play, there is a short section which asks the question, did you know? Significant and hardly known accomplishments of black citizens throughout American history are recounted. The point being made is critical and on target. How much black history is being taught in schools and in history books told through the lens of the white perspective? The problems continue today. The permanent prison class which has been created to legalize slavery, grows and grows with the overt support of both Republican and Democratic presidents since the Civil Rights Act. Ms. Martinson, along with her co-writers, Kareem M. Lucas, Jonathan Braylock, and Robert King, can hit hard, and it stings. So many people were horrified by the Confederate marches in Charlottesville. The movement has definitely been reignited with the election of Donald Trump. The Supreme Court is rolling back voting rights. Dark-skinned immigrants are the current target, but who knows who's next on the list of the righteous. Imagine being a child born here on a family tree containing centuries of slavery. Imagine her seeing white men carrying flags and torches, which can only mean a desire to return to that period. The Black History Museum makes you listen to a black perspective. The scope is overwhelming and intimate at the same time. If you plan to attend this slightly uneven and ultimately rewarding piece of theater, wear very comfortable shoes. Dress with the knowledge that the rooms can be very warm, although a coat check is provided. So many thoughts went through my head during and afterward. That's the sign of a successful trip to a museum. I'll get right back to reviews in a minute or two, but I wanted to tell you about four productions that are opening this spring, all of which I've reviewed in the past, and each of them moving to a larger location. Two, are, in fact, are going to Broadway. One is Hangman. It was a play done at the Atlantic Theater a couple of seasons ago, a Martin McDonough play, and it's fantastic. 
The Layman Trilogy was done last year at Park Avenue Armory, and that is also transferring to Broadway this spring. A small show from the New York Musical Festival is getting a big off-Broadway production at the Duke on 42nd Street. The show's title is a musical called Emoji Land. So if you were ever wondering what was going on with your emojis in your telephone, this is the show for you. It was a great hit at Nymph when it premiered a couple of years ago, and it is getting a big production with some good names in the cast. Um, if you want a hint as to what one of the characters is, well, her song is simply Princess is a Bitch. Lastly, The Confession of Lily Dare is also moving off Broadway to the Cherry Lane Theater, and that came from a production I saw a few years ago at Theater for the New City. Four things, all of which can be recommended, all of which you can find reviews for at www.theaterreviewsformyseat.com. Simply type in the show's name and you will find the review if you want to inspire early purchasing of tickets. Those four plays again were Hangman, The Layman Trilogy, The Musical Emoji Land, and The Confession of Lily Dare. Our next musical comes from a creative team based in Utah. A new musical based upon a famous novel and movie, An Enchanted April. Isn't it nice to know that a month in a medieval castle in Italy is just the right prescription to shake off the blues? An Enchanted April is a new musical from the Utah Lyric Opera, having its New York premiere. The story is an adaptation of Elizabeth von Arnim's 1922 best-selling novel. The stifling and endless rain in London prompts four dissimilar women to pause for a moment and take a holiday. This castle is overflowing with wisteria and enveloped in life-altering beauty. Lottie Wilkins and Rose Arbuthnot belong to the same ladies' club. They are not acquainted until Lottie strikes up a conversation. She is reading a newspaper and sees an ad for San Salvatore. A month-long trip is proposed. Rose thinks Lottie is quite mad and unbalanced. Eventually, these two women will bond over their unhappy marriages. Lottie is the dutiful wife to her unappreciative lawyer husband, Mellish. Rose is a quiet type who is absorbed with her charity work. Her husband, Frederick, is an author of lurid and titillating novels. This couple's relationship may be approaching a dead end. Their duet a song called Everything Was Changed is the best song in the show. Lottie is boisterous and fun. She doesn't mean to be presumptuous and rude. She just is. Rose sulks in her books, but nervously and excitedly agrees to take the trip. The rental is very costly, however, so they recruit two additional women to join them. Mrs. Fisher is an elderly lady still clinging to her proper Victorian ideals. She believes women's heads are not for thinking. Lady Carolyn Dester is newly engaged, but desperately wants to escape the burdens of London society and her celebrity in order to do some thinking. World War I and other tragedies have impacted everyone's life and mood. Breathing in the fresh air should be a restorative therapy. Toss in the castle's current owner, 
Thomas Briggs and the gong happy maid Francesca, and you've got a spicy bucatini arrabbiata. Well, not exactly. These are English stereotypes from 1922, after all. And a chanted April is more of a pesto. It's herbaceous, comforting, recognizable, and easily enjoyable, if a tad cheesy. Elizabeth Hansen and C. Michael Perry wrote this musical. The score and tone fit seamlessly with the story. Rhymes are often fun, such as rules and drools. William Armstrong's scenic and lighting design transports these women from depressing London to glorious Tuscany on a shoestring budget. Alice Jankel's direction uses limited space creatively, which readily accommodates both intimate conversations and awkward tea parties. An Enchanted April is a sentimental romantic trifle. There should be a large audience eager to see this musical, especially in regional theaters. The show could definitely benefit from a little editing. Seven reprises is probably too many. There may be more solos than necessary as well. Stylistically, the frequent belting vocals seem slightly incongruous with the period. From start to finish, however, this musical aims to please and entertain. On that level, it succeeds. The entire cast created nice characterizations and made their story arcs believable without being hokey. Or rather, just the right amount of hokey. Romance, relaxation, reflection, and reinvention was in the air. Christiana Cole's singing as the introverted Rose was richly melodic. Leah Hawking's Lottie is humorously dotty and her facial expressions were priceless. She sums up San Salvador in the way I might regard this tuneful new musical. We might not need a dungeon, but it is nice to have. Next, I want to take you to the bed neighborhood in Brooklyn, the play Reparations at the Billy Holiday Theater. Every year from 1989 through his retirement in 2017, Congressman John Coyers Jr. unsuccessfully proposed a bill to study whether reparations should be paid for slavery. In 2014, journalist Tina Hasey Coates published an article, The Case for Reparations, Renewing Demands for Compensation on a National Stage. On the 400th anniversary of slavery, James Sheldon's new play, Reparations, is being presented at the Billy Holiday Theater. This company has been located in the heart of Brooklyn's Bed-Stuy neighborhood for 47 years. Its long history has enabled diverse voices to create storytelling for, by, about, and near people of African descent. This particular world premiere play is the first one they have produced by a writer of non-African descent. A comment from Artistic Director Dr. Indira Itwaru. In 2019, theater remains a predominantly racially segregated experience. Here, then, is an opportunity to see one another anew and also discover ways to ask new questions of one another and ourselves. Her program notes conclude with, isn't that, after all, why we are here, breathing the same air, sharing the same space, even if only for a moment? 
This play has been given a mighty introduction for thought-provoking discussion and timely consideration. With this production, the mission has been accomplished. The beautifully detailed Upper East Side apartment, designed by Isabel and Moriah Curly Clay, announces restrained and tasteful elegance. When the door opens, Ginny and Reg stumble in tipsy from a book launch party. Ginny is a white woman who is older than her guest. He is a black man who has been writing freelance travel pieces and has penned a new novel. The beginning is awkward flirtation combined with somewhat forced cliches. Ginny's husband died seven months ago. Her therapist recommends curing her grief by seeking out intimacy and integrating it into her old life. Reg is clearly networking. His book is about an African-American police officer who is, quote, Obama with a badge and a gun. Conversation between the two is flirtatious and stilted. They came back to her apartment because she assumed he lived in a fringy part of town. He accuses her of making a racist statement by assuming he lives in a poor neighborhood. She knows what freelance writers earn. The play meanders through social climbing rom-com with racial zingers and socioeconomic factoids. Things get much more interesting when Ginny comments that we all want to overcome the superficial differences that keep us trapped in our own silly little boxes. These boxes include blacks, gays, transgender, Muslims, and even white working class Americans. Each is crying for help with their slogans like Black Lives Matter and Make America Great Again. In the second act, Ginny will prepare a paella for a dinner party. Paella can be many different things and is often a combination of various meats, seafood, and vegetables. This play is the wordy embodiment of that dish. Many disparate elements will be presented and consumed as silly little boxes are opened. Ginny asks, what happens when we confront realities outside of our little boxes? There are numerous twists and turns in reparations. They dangerously teeter on the edge of soap opera revelations and stock situations. Amazingly, however, the paella cooks long enough to bring a very satisfying dish to the table. Reparations are more than a conceptual idea. They have a deep personal meaning and will be aggressively tackled before the plays end. Every character is a living, breathing individual, bringing their own experience and worldviews into a difficult debate. Director Michelle Shea has staged a high-quality production for this intense and uncomfortable story. Kamal Bolden is a mesmerizing reg. He is utterly charming, vengefully angry, cleverly calculating, and in my mind, a consummate survivor. Alexandra Neal plays Ginny, who embarks on her new life with trepidation and, in many respects, fearlessness. Both share excellent chemistry. Their early scenes nicely mask the fireworks which will follow. Pompous Englishman and publisher Alastair and his wife, Nigerian-born Millie, will join Ginny and Reg for the luncheon party. Both couples are of mixed races, but their thoughts on reparations dig far deeper than the surface color of one's skin. The way the onion gets peeled open in this play may seem manipulative, and it is certainly that. 
However, the volume of stuff contained in all our little boxes, when thrust into the spotlight, allows us to test our humanity and our own character's ability to rise up. Reparations was an excellent addition to a fine month of theater. I've been in a conservative Catholic box in Heroes of the Fourth Turning. I spent time with LBJ as he attempted to forcefully open boxes wide with his civil rights agenda in the Great Society. I walked through the Black History Museum and was, literally, put in a box. In the epic play The Inheritance, which I'll review shortly, gay men come together to scream for their own escape. Listening has never seemed more vital and important as we steer our country and its painfully confused moral compass to a better future. Now let's talk about a couple of plays that opened on Broadway this fall. The first, The Sound Inside. When I first saw David Cromer's production of The Band's Visit Off-Broadway, I was enraptured by the quietly heartbreaking beauty of its story. This musical transferred to Broadway and remained an intimate, very focused, purposefully unadorned show. When you have outstanding material, letting it stand on its own can be a perfect strategy. The Sound Inside is a great play by Adam Rapp. Once again, Mr. Cromer has mounted an exceptional production which thrills as it travels along a mysterious path. Mary Louise Parker portrays Bella, a creative writing professor at Yale. She has written two short story collections and an underappreciated novel. In her opening scene, Bella communicates directly to the audience. She jots down notes on her pad as important details need to be written down. Diagnosed with stage two cancer and living alone, the story appears to be a bleak one. The creative team's design for this play never lets visual surroundings get in the way of the words. Alexander Woodward's scenic design and Heather Gilbert's lighting design are completely in sync with the tone of the play as it has been staged. Walking outside, there is a darkened hint of a tree which emerges in the background. Bella's office is cold and sparse. Everything is grays and blacks. Where will this two-character play go? Bella has a student in her freshman writing class. Christopher is, without any doubt, an oddball. He does not use Twitter and refuses to schedule his teacher meetings online. Fighting against everything and everyone that is the Yale stereotype, is he an 18-year-old literary genius in the making? Why so moody? And so rude? Christopher seems to respect Bella, however, and is presently writing his own novel despite his freshman course load. The manuscript is obviously autobiographical fiction. His protagonist is even named Christopher. He admits that the story is somewhat writing itself, or at least the characters are in charge. Bella utters a single line which I wish I heard while struggling through creative fiction writing in college. She tells him, If your protagonist is leading you, then you'll likely stay ahead of your reader. The Sound Inside is a fascinating and complex tale in both storyline and structure. Lovers of fiction 
and the process by which it is formed have much to savor in this 90-minute dialogue between two practitioners of the craft. The balance between what is real and what is fictional on stage is where this play stays ahead of the listener. Mr. Rapp has created a tightly wrought tale, which seems, however, to meander very casually and organically. The prose is often gorgeous. I have long been a fan of Mary Louise Parker and her impressive stage career. Her major theatrical achievements include Prelude to a Kiss, Proof, Heisenberg, and How I Learned to Drive. Her performance in this play is flawless. Will Hockman has the difficult task of keeping pace with her in a two-character study. He was excellent. There is an important scene between the two where you start to wonder if a romantic angle may develop. The plot considers many different forks through the literary forest. The lighting is warmer than the rest of the play at that moment. The depth of the writing and these two actors pull you into this critical moment. You are watching two people in a living room and the large Broadway house disappears. Everyone who participated in this production made that magic happen. The Sound Inside by Adam Rapp is unquestionably one of the best plays of this season. The production is every bit as good as the writing. This is Broadway at its absolute finest. Listen to the sound inside your head and do your best to see this before it closes. Currently, The Sound Inside is running at Studio 54 and is scheduled to close with its last performance on January 12, 2020. The next Broadway play I'd like to talk to you about is The Inheritance. Matthew Lopez has written the two-part epic The Inheritance with inspiration from E.M. Forster's Howard's End. That novel addressed social conventions, codes of conduct, and relationships in England at the start of the 20th century. This play has updated the action to New York City from 2015 to 2018. The story being told is about gay men. The ambition of the writing is staggering. Fascinatingly, Mr. Foster is a character at the start of this drama. He advises a group that they can use his novel to loosely create their own story and even change the words. This young generation of gay men are fairly critical of him. He wrote Maurice in 1913 about a homosexual relationship. That work was not published until after his death in 1971. The obvious comparison being made is how much more accepting the world is today. The other view is simply cowardice. Are things truly better? What social conventions have changed? Which still oppress? Eric Glass and Toby Darling are engaged to be married. Toby is writing a play called Lover Boy. Eric has befriended an older gay man who lives in their apartment building. Walter Poole has been with his billionaire Republican partner for eons. In a significant nod to Howard's End, the name Henry Wilcox is used for the wealthy man. These two older men also own a country house, which similarly plays a central thematic role as in the novel. The Inheritance is so boldly conceived that it has attempted a broad update of the 1991 masterwork Angels in America 
to the present day. Tony Kushner's play memorably covered the AIDS crisis in the latter stages of the 20th century. With treatments and preventive options now widely available, to at least those with the means, gay life and culture has moved on from that past. The play celebrates much of that freedom wittily. A sideline about whether camp should be over is winningly funny. As you might expect, the young are not so free and not so happy as it might first appear. Their gay baggage weighs them down, and some much more than others. The familiar and omnipresent family rejection lingers. These are not new revelations. Thoughts of finding one's own family are a central theme of mainstream gay entertainments such as RuPaul's Drag Race. Mr. Lopez's play does, however, shine a bright light on the responsibility question and necessity of effective community building and support. The direction by Stephen Daldry on an impressively spare set by Bob Crawley is energetic and fast-paced. The final scene at the end of the first half is mesmerizing theater and completely unforgettable. The second part is nowhere near as tight as the first half. There are many plot lines to wrap up, and the strain is evident as the grinders of a soap opera finale churn. At that point, a female character is introduced who is played by Lois Smith. That scene is quiet and reflective, which nicely guides this story to a satisfying conclusion. The acting ensemble is stellar across the board. Kyle Soller grounds this whole play in the central role of Eric, who realizes that to fall in love is to make an appointment with heartbreak. His solar energy sunbeam of a boyfriend, the brilliantly named Toby Darling, is played perfectly by Andrew Burnap. The role is complicated, unsympathetic, joyously alive, and emotionally moving at the same time. John Benjamin Hickey commands all of the gravitas needed to portray the conservative Wilcox. Paul Hilton is memorable as the moral compass in the crucial dual role of Walter Poole and Morgan, E.M. Forster. There are many Broadway debuts in this production, and everyone succeeds at the highest of levels. In the dual social climber roles of Adam and Leo, Samuel H. Levine was notably superb. I elected to see The Inheritance on a single day with a dinner break. That is a long commitment. I highly recommend part one. Then take a few days off and let that half sink in. There is a lot to process. A little distance may also help part two seem less clunky and heavy-handed. The scope of this production is immense. Serious theater patrons should be impressed. The gay community should be thrilled by the thoughtful discussions. As Mr. Kushner advised us years ago, there is more great work to be done. Next, I'd like to tell you about History of Violence, which was performed at St. Anne's Warehouse via Chaubonnet, Berlin. On Christmas Eve in 2012, Edouard Lewis was raped and almost murdered in his apartment in Paris. Four years later, a best-selling novel was published based on that traumatic event. Along with Thomas Ostermeyer and Florian Borchmeyer, History of Violence has been adapted for the stage in a riveting and multi-layered production. 
A young man is sitting on a chair in what appears to be a waiting area. The room is sterile in appearance. In the large St. Anne's warehouse space, the set's backdrop is enormously high. People in hazmat suits come in and start to lift fingerprints off the floor. A camera and microphone capture their efforts. These sights and sounds are projected on the screen and through the superb sound design. Evidence identification markers are placed around the crime scene. What has happened? Edouard reported the attempted homicide several hours after the incident occurred. In the early morning hours of December 25th, he jumps in the shower. He aggressively scrubs away the smell of Rita. On his way home the evening before, the two men met walking down the street. Rita cruised and charmed his way into an invitation. The men had sex before things turned extremely dark. At the start of this play, Edouard was sitting on a chair because he went to the hospital for an antiviral prophylaxis treatment. The grimness of the events are effectively rendered. The tale is made bearable, and often very funny, by the mechanics of the storytelling and the clear-eyed, inventive, and unique staging. The courtship at the beginning of this horrific one-night stand is flirtatious and cute. Retta comes across as irresistibly sexy. Renato Schutch is exceptional in the role. The transformation to a terrifying demon is deeply layered with guilt, shame, and self-preservation. Edouard escapes Paris for a few days to visit his sister in the small town where he grew up. He is another gay man who fled to the big city rather than fight small-mindedness and stifling oppression. His sister is played by the excellent Alina Steigler. She listens to her brother sympathetically and quite critically. She repeats the story to her husband while Edouard overhears them. The family dynamic, the innate turmoils of homosexuals and societal repressions swirl gently and meaningfully as this tale unfolds. Racism enters the storm as well. Retta is an Algerian man. The police believe he must be a miscreant and a criminal. An unusually forthright memoir is brought to life through the bookish Edouard himself. Lorenz Laufenberg impressively captures and demonstrates his naivete, his desire for love, his retreat, his shame, and his ultimate survival. The recollections are intense and uncomfortable. The pendulum swings frequently and remarkably effortlessly between joyful, such as the dance breaks, and horrifying, such as the rape. Both extremes keep the edges sharp and surprising. History of Violence is a presentation from the Chabonnet am Leninger Platz, also known as the Theater on Leninger Square in Berlin. Artistic director Thomas Ostermeyer directed this outstanding production, which is performed in German with English supertitles. This is contemporary theater enriched by extraordinary storytelling and an unflinching examination of the human condition. Be warned, this show sails through some rough waters. This company travels the world showcasing its voluminous work. 
They have produced 100 world and German premieres in the past 19 years. I will not miss an opportunity to experience again this level of quality and originality. Next, I'd like to talk about one of my favorite theater companies of the past few years, Transport Group. They have moved to a much larger off-Broadway venue than I've seen them in the past, the Duke on 42nd Street. This is a musical that they produced. It's called Broadbend, Arkansas. There seems to be an endless stream of theater in New York about racial issues prior to the Civil Rights Act and beyond. Many of them are musicals, and quite a number I've seen focused on the Freedom Riders. Broadbent, Arkansas is another one. This one aims for chamber piece. The show is baffling, incoherent, poorly staged, and seems to lack a reason to exist. Act 1 takes place in 1961. Benny is an orderly in a nursing home. He takes care of ordinary white women. There is a lot of time spent on the story of two of them. One is a patient. The other is Juline, the woman who runs the facility. There was a bizarre storyline about the two women fighting over the love of a dead man. Benny tells and sings about all of this. Benny has twin daughters, but hears the calling of a movement gathering momentum. He decides to meet up with the Freedom Riders who are riding interstate buses to protest the non-enforcement of civil rights laws. He is killed by a white police officer for no reason during a traffic stop. None of this has any dramatic tension whatsoever. The spoken theme is obvious. When you are after justice, you do what it takes. His daughters were raised by Juline, who ran the nursing home. In the second act, his daughter Ruby travels to a cemetery where Benny and Juline are buried next to each other. The time is now 1988. Ruby is grieving because her teenage son is in the hospital. He was brutally beaten by police officers who apparently were, quote-unquote, forced to subdue him. This act is far better than the first, but it also drags on and on. Danielle Fulton has a lovely voice and came much closer to conveying the emotional heft required of this material. To be fair, her half was clearly better written. The libretto was by Ellen Fitzhugh and Harrison David Rivers, with music by Ted Shen. There is no set, just a couple of chairs. There is not a set designer credited, but there is a scenic consultant. The placement of the chairs? The orchestra sits behind the large platform. That was ill-advised since I found myself watching them playing an intermittently enjoyable jazzy score. The material is deadly serious, but totally confusing. Placing this unfocused material on a completely bare stage is so odd as to be impossible to fathom. In every show, there are nuggets to be savored. Ruby discusses what it's like to be a black girl in a mixed-race school as a child. She shares her thoughts when asked, What do you want to be when you grow up? She just picks someone else's answer. As a minority, she knows, Some people's dreams are less like dreams and more like a foregone conclusion. An insightful and effective line. You have to search hard and stay very focused 
in order to hear them. I am an enormous fan of the transport group's work and Jack Cummings III, who directed this misguided effort. This company has been on a tear recently with exceptional productions, including Renaissance, Summer and Smoke, The Trial of the Catonsville Nine, and Picnic. I understand that the point being made in Broadbent, Arkansas, relates to our continuing national strife over racism. We must get back on that bus. Theater, however, cannot simply be topical and relevant. It also has to be far, far better than this to be recommended. Frankly, I was blown away that this show was so awful. Next, I'd like to talk about another artist who I follow, the playwright Will Eno. His newest play, The Underlying Chris. There are playwrights who create new works that I feel compelled to see because their previous efforts have been so good and original. Will Eno is one of them. I've already encountered Tom Paine based on nothing, Middletown, the realistic Joneses, and Wakey Wakey. The underlying Chris is a terrific addition to that recommended list. Mr. Eno seems to be an acquired taste. Critics and audiences are not all on board. I find his sense of humor to be the perfect kind of sarcastic observation. Here is a line from this new play. It shows up randomly and means nothing other than to elicit a laugh. We all know how aromatic candles are made, but do we know why? The underlying Chris is a play about a person who travels from birth to death. In the first scene, a baby is in a crib. The gender is not quite established. Oh no, is this going to be that sort of play? Not to worry. Its mother is going to die in a car accident shortly. This play is about the moment that shapes a life and the people who shape a moment. Chris will age from a teenager to an old person in an assisted living facility. I'm dying of cake, he states. In an astonishing series of vignettes, all of the Chris incarnations will appear to show an unremarkable and yet remarkable life. In one such segment, a young woman switches her sport of choice from diving to tennis. Earth-shattering? No. Real life? Yes. Throughout this play, Chris changes gender and race in each and every scene. Names will vary, such as Chris with a K, Christine, and Krista. The clever conceit is clearly meant to show that our stories of life are universal. This play takes the occasionally successful idea of colorblind and gender-fluid casting and expands it to the writing itself, another layer of interest to enjoy. Under Kenny Leon's direction, the uniformly excellent and beautifully modulated cast flows through life's largely familiar events. The body is a, quote, non-stop surprise party. As the underlying Chris ages, however, Feelings seem to deepen as wisdom emerges. An appreciation for the gift that is life emerges. Chris realizes it is quite an honor to be born. This is a tiny little play about slices of life that are as big as the concept of human existence. Fantastic would be the adjective I would use to describe its impact when the final scene ends. Unfortunately, 
The play is being performed in the off-Broadway house of Second Stage. Regular listeners might remember the obstructed view seating at Linda Vista earlier this season. Unbelievably, this theater company has done it again. In the opening scene, and others, people sitting near me could not see the actors on stage. How can one theater company with multiple stages and directors not notice this? The scenic design by Arnulfo Maldonado was clever as the time periods flew by. Side panels were not wide enough to consider everyone's seat in the audience. Scenes would roll off stage to the left and right. While the actors were on stage performing, the noise level backstage was horrendous. My notes include the words crashing and banging. If you went to see this excellent play, you needed to sit farther back. Maybe you wouldn't notice the blatant distractions. Those avoidable missteps, however, did not hinder my ability to love this play. There is something inherently wonderful about pausing and considering the miracle of life. Mr. Eno writes, Be glad you have a body. Be glad you were there when the universe was handing them out. To that, I would add, be glad, theater goers, that you are alive while Will Eno is writing. As you can tell by now, this has been an exceptionally busy theater month for me. I still have three left to share with you. Our next one is called Staging the Daffy Dame. It was performed at the campus of the University of Notre Dame in Indiana. Lope de Vega was a prolific Spanish playwright during Spain's Golden Age. He was a contemporary of Shakespeare, and nearly 500 plays are attributed to him. One is La Dama Balba, written in 1613. This play has been loosely translated as The Lady Simpleton, or The Lady Fool, or Lady Nitwit. Staging the Daffy Dame is a modern consideration of how to present this work in the hashtag hashtag era. The original play is not simply the silly exploits of a daffy woman or two. The main characters seem to fall under the spell of potential suitors. Their father is strict. Is that to protect or control them? In a world dominated by men, what role do these women play in order to adapt themselves to their time? Can daffy be an intelligent strategy to manipulate the world to their advantage? That is a premise worthy of study. Staging the Daffy Dame has been written by faculty member Anne Garcia Romero and was presented by the Notre Dame Film, Television, and Theater Department. The idea is great, but the plot has been grossly overstuffed with nearly every possible hot topic of the moment. Lupi Sanchez is a college professor. Her vision is to stage the Daffy Dame with colorblind casting. Latino and Latina actors covet these roles. Why should they have to share them? After an overextended sequence about calling them Latinx now, there is an interesting but unanswered question. Shouldn't Latinx actors train on Spanish classics like English actors train on Shakespeare? This story about putting on a play falls into the trap of soap opera plotting. Twists and turns are not really established. 
Felicia Alvarado will be playing the lead opposite Luis Gonzalez. In the third scene, she announces that she cannot act with him. I couldn't see how that was established. When he suggests they try to rehearse in the play's native Spanish, she says, I'm experiencing a hostile environment. Felicia, it turns out, is an undocumented immigrant and does not speak Spanish. Both lead actors are in the midst of the DACA cycle. He outs her to the cast. The director is criticized for creating a hostile environment where such behavior could happen. The term safe space is tossed into the mix. A cast member who suggests rehearsing in the play's native language is treated as horrific and insulting. If this is what the intellectual give and take of college campuses are now, I'm very glad to be well past this period in my life. As you might imagine, there are lots of side dramas and relationships. Susan Harrison is, quote, attracted to smart, woke, interesting men or women, depending on the person, unquote. In the best, most complete performance, James Cullinane plays the jock type. While the character of Jeff Hollister has to utter bro and dude more times than a frat house on Friday night, he manages to fill out the role and shade it nicely into a fully developed real person. He even manages to make the homoerotic friendship rehearsal scene work with Mr. Burney, who plays Lewis. The best scene in this production, by far, is the one between the jock and the bisexual young lady. Both brought nice depth and interpersonal chemistry to the moment. The playwright added some nice imagery about birds crashing into windows, leading to conversations about one's soul and healing. The professors in the stage crew are fairly underdeveloped stereotypes in this play. One stagehand is gay, the other wants to remain a virgin. Being a professor of the arts as a person of color is hard. Don't pull that card with me, screams the other teacher. I found the mounting cliches too much to bear. When the play finally gets to the point where the cast is staging the Daffy Dame, I was engaged. The costumes by Richard E. Donnelly were particularly good. Director Kevin Dreyer did not amp up the antics far enough to demonstrate that this was Corral de Comedias, typical of the period. After all of the woke lecturing and many mini-dramas, an over-the-top flamboyant style might have made all the previous plotting worthwhile. University theater departments should be pushing their students to take on culturally relevant topics. They also should be exploring the classics and bringing lesser-known plays and playwrights into the theatrical discussion. The attempt to combine the two ideas was commendable. The result, however, seemed more like a teaching exercise rather than explosion of intellectual debate about women and immigrants in today's society. And now for an immersive theater piece, Unmaking Tallulah Trek. One of the best-known painters of the post-impressionist period Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec lived a short and fascinating life. His art captured the spirit of late 19th century Paris from the denizens of brothels to the dancers at the Moulin Rouge. Bated Breath Theatre Company, in conjunction with the bar Madame X, are presenting an immersive entertainment entitled 
Unmaking Tallulah Trek. This one-hour show is billed as immersive theater. When heading up the stairs to the upper floor of this bar, the door opens and you enter a room dripping in red. Head over to the bar and grab a cocktail. There are an assortment of chairs and couches on the perimeter of the elongated room. The environment is very promising. The show is an assortment of sketches and imagery intended to illuminate a feeling of the era. The action occurs on a balcony at one end and also in the middle of the room. Highlights from the painter's life are covered from his bone growth disorder to his troubled relationship with his parents. They were first cousins. Was inbreeding the cause of his physical ailments? There's nothing that deep considered in this production, but Tallulah Trek's feelings of inferiority register strongly. What happens after his childhood makes sense from the biographical outline presented here. The underclass of Paris did, however, embrace him to a degree. They became the inspiration for his extensive artistic output. In order to celebrate this era, dancers will perform the can-can. Sexy women are clad in bustiers. The mood is light and fun, but the artist is anything but that. He descends into alcoholism and catches syphilis. There are many bad syphilis jokes told. This review-like show contains some truly inspired moments, such as when his mother uses movement and a marionette to narrate her relationship with her son. As Tallulah Trek, Daniel George was very effective. The overall impact is, unfortunately, only a slight diversion. The concept is interesting, but the execution is just a bit too simple, especially when compared to other immersive theatrical events in New York. Ticket prices, however, are a reasonable $47 and include a complimentary cocktail. The show is performed twice on Wednesday nights and is usually sold out. On Making Tallulah Trek has some good creative elements. The audience is very small and everyone is close to the action. In order to make this a recommended trip downtown, this company should probably further develop the Parisian vibe of the period. As it currently stands, this endeavor does not have enough focus to even sustain its one-hour running time. Unmaking Tallulah Trek began performances about six months ago and is currently booking through January. My last review this month is a new musical, The Giant Hoax, by Indie Works Theater. In the musical Barnum, a song lyric compels you to join the circus like you wanted to when you were a kid. In the family-friendly new musical, The Giant Hoax, a young farm girl named Emily will do just that. She's heard about the Cardiff giant and wants to see the amazing wonder for herself. Emily runs away from home and will learn some valuable lessons, meet an assortment of colorful characters, and sing about wonderful things. Scenic designer Theron Weiniger places you into the period immediately when you enter the theater. There's a shiny red and white circus tent. The sign promises the one and only Cardiff giant who is 10 feet tall and weighs 2,990 pounds. The Albany Daily Newspaper headline reads, Scientists question authenticity of giant man uncovered in Cardiff. This musical is inspired by one of the most famous hoaxes in American history. On October 16th, 
1869, workers digging a well behind the barn of William C. Newell found a purported petrified man. Mr. Newell went by the nickname Stubb. He pitched a tent over this discovery and charged 25 cents for people who wanted to see this colossal human ancestor. Stubb and Emily opened the show with a song called The Cardiff Giant. The entire ensemble is noticeably alive with energy. Emily will see this giant and befriend him. Their duet is called Imaginary Friends. Emily joins Stubb's business and learns some tips about salesmanship and the power of carnival barking. P.T. Barnum took notice of this profitable phenomenon. When his offer to buy the novelty was rebuked, he famously made his own version. Both versions of the Cardiff Giant, incredibly, are on display in museums today. Kit Goldstein Grant wrote the book, music, and lyrics for the Giant Hoax. The storytelling is creative and clear. The songs are pleasantly simple and tuneful. I dare you to see this show and not exit the theater singing, Beautiful things, beautiful things, believe in these beautiful things. This musical, however, does not pander to its target young people audience. Themes about blind faith, greed, and trustworthiness are placed front and center. Barnum himself makes that very clear. He says, it's the American way to steal ideas and make them pay. Emily's child life beliefs and her naivete will be challenged as she escapes the comforts of home and mother. The Giant Hoax is memorably staged by director Christopher Michaels to evoke this particular time period and this bizarrely entertaining story. The creative elements are outstanding and well-coordinated. Tyler Carlton Williams' costumes are nicely realistic. Noel Williams's puppet design of the giant creates a sense of wonder and an impression of enormity. The lighting design by Connor Martin Mulligan is superb. The old-fashioned shadow effects are stunning. There are many elements to enjoy in the giant hoax. The story is an incredible combination of American chutzpah and American gullibility. People flocked to see this exhibit as proof of the Bible. Genesis 6-4 mentions giants in the earth. Dr. Martin from the Yale School of Paleontology, however, begs to differ. She's played by Yvette Monique Clark, who is now my first choice to play Niecy Nash in her biographical musical, If It Gets Written. Performances are solid, though, across the board. Stacy Stout is a believably wide-eyed Emily. She's a smart young lady facing a complicated big world for the first time. Daniel Moser's Giant is vividly embodied. The direction and performance of the ensemble is to be commended. Everyone seems to have a purpose to be on stage, which enriches the entire viewing experience. There are quite a few song reprises in the Giant Hoax, which unnecessarily elongate this musical. In addition, a few distracting side stories, such as the one about the two other kids, do not seem integral to the main plot. A tighter show would be even more welcome, especially when given a production this thoughtful and imaginative. 
The Giant Hoax is running at Theater Row until December 7th. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Theater Reviews from My Seat. Next month is also going to be a busy theater month. A number of holiday offerings will be discussed, including the burlesque Nutcracker Rouge at from Company 14 in Brooklyn, the Santa Closet presented by Houses on the Moon Theater Company, a Christmas Carol in Harlem presented by the Classical Theater of Harlem, a Christmas Carol on Broadway, and two stars from RuPaul's Drag Race, Ben de la Creme and Jinx Monsoon in All I Want for Christmas is Attention. In perhaps a more serious vein, Lucas Nath, the author and playwright of Hillary and Clinton, A Doll's House Part Two, Red Speedo, and The Christians, all excellent plays, has a new one called The Thin Place opening in December. And lastly, at the Park Avenue Armory, Judgment Day. They're promising to transform the Wade Thompson Drill Hall into a train station reminiscent of the original Grand Central Depot and the great train stations of Europe. The space is incredibly large, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing what they're going to do in there. Luke Kirby, who just won an Emmy playing Lenny Bruce on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, will be starring in that production. If you have any comments or suggestions, I'd love to hear them. Also, if you are looking for me to review a specific show, please send an email to theaterreviewsfrommyseat at comcast.net. You can also sign up for email subscriptions to current reviews as they are published at www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. And if you prefer to take your reviews in podcast form on a monthly summarized basis, you can find me on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcast. Thank you for listening. Have a great day and enjoy your theater-going experiences.